Happy Saturday. Welcome to another episode of Fact. We are going to be looking at a character in history, a very important character because of how closely he was related to the disciples of the Lord themselves. And his name is Ignatius. Now we have to clarify sometimes because there is more than one Ignatius in church history, but this is Ignatius of Antioch. In today's episode, I've decided to call it Ignatius of Antioch, a friend of the apostles. And I want to do an overview of his life and take a look at some of the writings that he has invested into the churches in the early second century and that we still have copies of today. Now, it is not without difficulty that we have these copies because we're going to see that there's some controversy about letters with his name and the received letters in his name. So those that are not received and those that are received, there's controversy within both, but I think we can pretty much narrow it down to which ones are the authentic and exactly the way he probably would have written these letters to these churches that he has invested his life in his ministry and before his martyrdom. Now, there is debate as also as to when he died, but Without a doubt to me, he was likely to have died during the age of Trajan when Trajan was the ruler there in Rome. Now, Trajan ruled for the time between 98, he took over after Domitian, 98 to 117. So his death would likely land between those years. And I would state that it was probably close to 105 to 110 now, when he was born, we do not know. We can only guess, but it seems to be that he was alive for at least more than half of the first century. More than half, if not more, uh, closer to 60 or 70 years. We don't know for sure because there's so much that's not said about Ignatius except with what was stated within his own letters. Now, Eusebius gives us some information about him, and he certainly places the death closer to the age of Trajan. And again, uh, you know, Eusebius has information that we don't have today. I know that sometimes people could be critical of his date, his dates and his data because they think he has some sort of bias towards making connections in the early. It's like, well, you know what? I mean, he had information, he had research, he had data that we just do not have. He had a library full of access, unlimited resources that we're looking at scraps and fragments in that he saw in its fullness. So I'm not so quick to write him off and he's not the only one anyway. But Ignatius of Antioch, he's one of the apostolic fathers that's connected to the apostles themselves. Now, the other two are Clement of Rome and I have a lot to say about Clement of Rome, but it'll be another time. And Polycarp of Smyrna. And we're going to cover both these men. So don't worry. You've heard me say this for a while, but we will cover them. We've referenced them multiple times, but we will cover their life as well. And as I stated, Eusebius reported that Ignatius's arrest and then later his, his martyrdom in the Colosseum by wild beasts occurred during that Trajan time. He also stated that Ignatius replaced Evodius. Now, we don't know much about him except by name recommended here by Eusebius. Now, Evodius was a replacement of Peter as bishop of Antioch. 
And then we're finding that he's saying that Ignatius replaced Evodius as the bishop there at Antioch around 69 AD, around the time when the temple was about to be destroyed. Apparently Evodius was, was killed or he died. And he was the successor of Peter there in Antioch and then came Ignatius. So he would have been officially the third bishop of the churches of Antioch. Now there's no doubt he was a bishop in the church of Antioch. I don't think anybody really disputes that. The question is what number? Uh, if you count Peter, he's number three. If you don't count Peter, he's number two. It is debated as whether or not he knew John personally, which I, I find that one hard to believe. I actually see a, a, a connection between he and John, but he, he definitely knew Polycarp. He wrote a letter to him, which we'll get into. And Polycarp was traveling with John. He was with John. He was commissioned by John to be the Bishop of Smyrna and Ignatius and Polycarp seem to be very close. So to me, it would seem very likely that he also knew John the Apostle and we'll see more evidence of that shortly. There is a writing called The Martyrdom of Ignatius. Now, it cannot really be as uh, seriously taken as the letters Ignatius himself wrote, but there is tradition. And some tradition is partially true and mostly wrong or mostly right and partially wrong uh, or 50-50. Uh, but in this statement, it says in chapter one of The Martyrdom of Ignatius, when Trajan, not so long since, succeeded to the empire of the Romans, Ignatius, the disciple of John the Apostle, a man in all respects of an apostolic character, governed the churches of Antioch with great care, having with difficulty escaped the former storms of many persecutions under Domitian. So what this tradition is stating is that he was a disciple of John, and that he actually had experienced multiple attempts of being arrested and put to death by Domitian. It was Trajan who was eventually capable of finding him and actually arresting him and hauling him back to Rome. And there he met his fate, fate of death. Theodoret mentions in a statement that Peter appointed Ignatius to the Sea of Antioch. Now, again, um, when we talk about Ignatius, one of the things that I'm looking for is consistency in tradition or consistency in statement. Because remember, he did not say a lot about himself. Now, in one of his letters, he does mention Peter and Paul, and he mentions their apostolic authority in comparison to his as a bishop. But when we deal with Ignatius, I, I really want you to begin to see something. There's no dispute from multiple sources that he was connected and in contact with the apostles themselves. And it seems like he had a connection to John and Peter. Now, John Chrysostom lays a special emphasis by honoring Ignatius in such a way and said that he received his bishopric at the hands of the apostles themselves. Now, I would likely think John Chrysostom would have been referring to mostly John and Peter, I, specifically John. But I would imagine when he said apostles, plural, he also had Peter in mind given 
his traces back to Antioch with the connection that Eusebius brought up that, that he was connected to Peter and he replaced Evodius as a bishop in Antioch. So I would think Chris, Chrysostom is talking also about Peter, not just John, when he says apostles. So Theodoret and John Chrysostom, and then Martin and Ignatius, Eusebius, they're connecting him back to specifically two apostles, which would be John and Peter. Now it would, it would lend ourselves to believe that if John were still alive when he was uh, friends with him, because it's about the time John died right around 101 AD, according to the, the timeline that Jerome gives of his death in Ephesus, it would seem like that during the time he would have known Peter in the 60s, but he would have been very young. It is possible that he was perhaps in his early 20s when he knew Peter, but consistently remained around John uh, as an older man and spent a lot of time around John in that era. That, that's very, very possible. Uh, it is probable uh, that he was an old man when he was executed. He was he was clearly fine with death. <laughs> he was ready to die and no argument of death. So it is very possible that he lived um, the same time that Peter did, but as a very young man and was an older man by the time he had spent his years with Polycarp. We know Polycarp lived a long time and he was with John um, and, and he died closer to the mid second century uh, where he was killed as well. Now, Ignatius called himself Theophorus, the God-bearer, if you would. Now, the meaning gave birth to some legends about him. He, he doesn't say much about himself, but he constantly refers to himself as Theophorus, Theophorus. What is that? What is Theophorus or Theophorus? What, what, what does he mean, the God-bearer? Well, we don't really know because he didn't explain the title, uh, but there are some legends about him that he, as a child, had personally met the Lord Jesus and that he was the child that Jesus held in his arms and presented to his apostles and those listening what it means to have a right relationship with God from Matthew 18, 2, and you can find the story also in Luke 9, 47. Now, this was the opinion of some. There is no proof. Uh, men like Anastasius, the librarian, which was a ninth century uh, writer, indicated that this child that Jesus held was the God-bearer, Ignatius. Now, again, we cannot prove this. There, there are some other theories during really the Reformation period from St. Francis de Sales or Sales. And, uh, you know, he lived between 1567 and 1612. In a sermon, he actually remarked how blessed was the glorious St. Ignatius since he was taken up in our Lord's arms, given as an example to the apostles. What sacred, secret words our Lord said to this happy child as he kissed him, engraving his own sacred name in the depths of his heart. This is from the Sermon on the Feast of Purification of Mary. And he states in a sermon, Perhaps his source is similar to Anastasius, the librarian, but that he states that Ignatius was actually the child that Jesus held and used as an example in Matthew and Luke. Now, I doubt that's likely. Uh, it's interesting to note, I'm putting it as a note, not as a plausible argument, but a possible argument that we should uh, keep in the back 
pocket of our, our minds. We do have record that he was potentially that child. Again, I do not think it is probable, but it's something to be noted. Now, instead of being executed in Antioch, where he was, Ignatius was escorted. He was escorted all the way back to Rome. Now, it seems that 10 soldiers were sent to do this. In his writing to the Romans in chapter 5, he states, From Syria, even in Rome, I fight with beasts, both by land and by sea, both by night and by day. Being bound by 10 leopards, I mean a band of soldiers. So he seems to be saying that he is fighting the beast before he ever makes the Colosseum. That the beasts are actually the Roman soldiers who are carrying him. Now, apparently they let him stop at port to port in their travels and engage conversation with some of the churches on his way, which he's going to write seven letters to. The epistle to the Ephesians is one of those letters. Now, we believe there are seven original, and I'm going to get into that in a minute, but let me go ahead and state which seven I think are the original. That is, one, the epistle to the Ephesians. In this epistle, let me give you some highlights of it, Ignatius highly praises Onesimus. Now, we do not know if this is the same Onesimus that Paul recommended to Philemon after he was a runaway, uh, and he was a runaway slave to Philemon, and ended up running into Paul in Rome, became a believer. And it is stated in history that he did become a bishop. So it is possible that it is the same Onesimus. Uh, if not, it is a different God-fearer. But he praises Onesimus as a bishop. said, I receive therefore your whole multitude in the name of God through Onesimus, a man of inexpressible love and your bishop in the flesh, whom I pray you by Jesus Christ to love back and that you would seek to be like him. Now, what you're going to find about Ignatius is that he had a high, high level of respect and belief in the apostolic system of bishops. Now, I'm going to tell you why I don't think that he believed in a succession like the Roman Catholic Church, because they go all the way to the papacy to Peter and believe of equal authority. And they use Ignatius a lot, but I want to actually show you how I don't think that's fairly representing Ignatius. Does Ignatius believe in the bishopric? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and he is a successor of Peter. Not directly, but second generation. Whether he knew Peter or not, again, is up for debate, but he was certainly second from Peter. So he had a high regard for leadership in the church. He seems to have a three system of leader that is expressed in his letters. One, a bishop, two, the elders, and three, the deacons. These are his, his important levels of understanding. There were bishops who were overseeing the churches with the aid and connection to apostolic succession. Then there were the elders who led these church, served these church, taught these church, and equipped the church. Then there were deacons who served and aided in the, in the physical needs of the church to allow the elders and the bishops to do the work of edifying and evangelizing. There's no doubt that is the system of Ignatius. And if he invented this system, then he invented it very, very early on in the first century. 
And somehow he got away with inventing it when, when it just so happens all these other churches that he's writing in Asia Minor and to Rome already have these systems in place as well. So I doubt he created them. They seem to already be in place in churches he had no jurisdiction in. But that's a debate for another time. The epistle to the Ephesians, he represents the importance of the bishop, the importance of respecting. He goes so far as to say that you should obey them the way you would obey Christ. And I think that's where some of the Roman Catholicism starts using him as a representative for the papacy, the way they envision the papacy. Now, he's going to say something later that I think will disconnect that, but it is true. He states that they should obey the bishop the same way they obey Christ. Now, somebody may be listening to this thing. Now, Stephen, do you actually believe we should do that? Well, no, I don't, uh, because it seems like he is saying there's an infallibility there, but I don't think that's what he's saying, because he's going to mention himself as not being a perfect man in these, in these letters, and that he is least. Now, I do think that when he did see that his life was designated for something special, he calls himself the God-bearer. Maybe he is referring to being a child that was held by Jesus. I, I don't know. But he does, he does see his life as meaningful. But more importantly, he sees his death as more meaningful than his life. He wants to die the way Jesus died. He wants to be connected to the martyrdom. He sees it as an honor and a privilege. No, he writes another letter called the Epistle to the Magnesians. The Magnesians, and also later a, a neighboring church, uh, the Tralian, which I'll get to them in a minute, they sent their bishops, uh, Polybius and Damis, and they sent some of the elders from Magnesia to meet Ignatius to, to actually speak to him while he was in transport to Rome in a nearby port that was probably in the area of Smyrna. And Ignatius then writes a letter to the Magnesian and to the Tralian church, and no doubt he would have handed the letter to the bishops that had just came to visit with those elders. And in that letter, he states, if therefore those who were brought up in the ancient order of things have come to the possession of a new hope, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in the observance of the Lord's day, that would be Sunday, on which also our life has been sprung up again being that we have been resurrected to life by him and by his death. So he's instructing the Magnesians not to fall into Judaism. And in Judaism, they continually emphasize the Sabbath as a day of worship, whereas he's saying the tradition that they have received going back to the apostles is that the observance of worship, the observance of of dedication, of hope, should be done on the Lord's day in which the Lord was resurrected from the dead. And we too share in that resurrection, both spiritually and future, physically. So he's saying, how should we be able to live apart from him whose disciples, the prophets themselves and the spirit, did wait for him as their teacher? He's saying, look, the prophets awaited the day of the Messiah and what should take place next? His apostles were the fulfillment of the prophetic nature of these writings. And therefore, they stated, he's saying, the tradition of, of meeting on Sunday is from the apostles themselves. The prophets observed a Saturday worship. The 
apostles recognized the fulfillment of that should be expressed in the day Jesus resurrected. So what he's saying is the worship of Sunday is is attached to the resurrection of Jesus and taught by the apostles that he is continuing that tradition of and not to let Judaism tell them otherwise. So that's an interesting aspect in his letter to the Magnesians. He also wrote a third letter to the Tralians, who I just mentioned. In the Tralians, he said, Stop your ears, therefore, when anyone speaks to you at a variance of Jesus Christ, who is descended from David and also from Mary. Now, what he's doing with the Magnesians and the Tralians is he's reminding them that Judaism is still alive and well, even at the time of the early second century, and that this concept of them influencing them should be put to rest. Don't let any teaching of Jesus deviate from the true teaching. It says he was truly born, but there's also another issue that's going to come up that he's also engaging both Judaism and docetism. So this again helps us actually date a little bit the time of these writings. If docetism is in its preeminence and it has found itself in route and in route to these cities, this would place us in the early second century. John the Apostle and his writers and his community, the Johannine community, which involved Arisian, John the Elder, and others, when this is taking place, he was hitting docetism as it was starting, which is at the end of the first century. This is probably another 10 to 15 years later from John. Let's just say it could be up to 20. Now it's taken its full root in these cities. Now he's dealing with the manner in which Jesus was a physical born child. So you have Judaism, you have docetism in these churches. He says he was truly born and and he did eat and drink. He was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate. He was truly crucified and died in the sight of beings, yes, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He was also truly raised from the dead. His father having raised him up as in the same manner his Father will raise up us who believe in him by Jesus Christ, apart from whom we do not possess the true life. It is also in the letter to the Tralians in chapter 7 that he uses the phrase God, Jesus Christ, as God, calling Jesus Christ God. So we see that he's one of the earliest writers who introduces the interpretation that Jesus truly was God. Now, this is important, not just from the understanding of the biblical text, but also that he knew the apostles and their opinion. So this idea that Jesus became God, or later in history, nobody believed him to be God till he was made God, was not the case in the mind of Ignatius. But it was also that he was a real man. He ate real food, drank real beverages. He died on a real cross was resurrected out of a real tomb. His physical body did come back to life. He's ignoring the idea that Jesus himself was some sort of uh, spirit being. Now in this, I think this would have been a good opportunity if he was a child held by Jesus to have informed the churches that Jesus physically held him and he felt the hands of Jesus. Now, again, That's probably because he wasn't the child used in the passage. But maybe he was. Who knows? But to me, this would be a good place maybe to insert that. He also wrote a letter to the Romans, which is one of his most profound and and most known. But he's kind of suicidal in this letter. When When I read the letter to the Romans, it's like, I'm going to die. 
don't stop me. Don't try to get me out. Don't try to bail me out of this. I want to die. Uh, he wanted to experience the martyrdom in front of him. He said, the church which is beloved and enlightened by the will of him that wills all things which are according to the love of Jesus Christ, our God. This is stated in the greeting. He recognized the sovereignty of God, that things that happen are according to his will and are done in accordance to the love of Jesus Christ. So his will is based out of his love, but he calls him Jesus Christ, our God. Clearly, he believed in the deity. He also says, I do not, he mentions Peter and Paul, as Peter and Paul issue commandments unto you. They were apostles. I am but a condemned man. They were free while I am even now a servant. Now, Peter and Paul were definitely not free in the sense of they were also imprisoned and they were also martyred. Peter was hung upside down and crucified. Paul was beheaded. He's about to go to the Colosseums and die. What's odd to me is that he mentions Peter and Paul as apostles and that he says, when they issue commandments to you, I do not issue them in the same manner because they were apostles and I'm not. This is where the disconnect of the bishopric and the papacy concept in the Roman Catholic Church, I do not believe work together. I don't see it, folks. He is actually saying that his authority is not equal to the apostles. Now, I've I mentioned this before, and when we get to Polycarp's epistle to Philippians, he does the same thing in his. He appeals to the apostles' teachings over his. Specifically, Polycarp will appeal to Paul. Here's Ignatius giving precedence to Paul and Peter over himself in commandment form. This idea that, well, he, he's, he's the uh, authority of Peter, this Pope. We, we've got to listen to him because he's in the succession line of Peter. Well, first of all, Peter wasn't the only apostle and Peter had to be corrected. Not only did Jesus correct him, Paul had to correct him. The idea that if you're in a station of, pap of papacy, you are a leader, a bishop, a hierarching bishop, the way that it has been presented, that you speak infallibly, Peter screwed that up quite a bit. The first pope wasn't perfect, and the first pope did not speak perfect. He had great moments. Peter was a, a tremendous saint of God who did the work that Jesus called him to do, and he did feed the sheep. But even after he was affirmed, and even after Pentecost, he alone did not make decisions in relation to the church. He alone did not do it in his own authority. Just read Acts 15. He did not get the final statement in the council of Jerusalem. James, the brother of Jesus, did. And it was a group decision. Everybody had input. Elders, apostles, Paul. James, Peter, John, they all held authority in that meeting. It seems to me that the Bishop of Jerusalem actually indicated through James that he was the one who pressed forward the decision to write the letter and make a choice of circumcision. Even when Paul revisits the idea of the leaders of Jerusalem, he does not say, 
the pillar of the church of Jerusalem is Peter. No. He says, it appeared that the three pillars were Peter, John, and James, the brother of Jesus. That's that's the relation that's there. We do not see this hierarchical one-man system. There were not just one... There's not just one apostolic church, folks. <clears throat> I've said this time and time again. What kills me, we were the one true church. <clears throat> I've heard it said in Eastern Orthodoxy. I've heard it said in Roman Catholicism. There was not one single true church. Any church that was a start that was started by the apostles and was given succession to leaders was a true church. There were many true churches. Yes, Rome was one, but they were an insignificant church for the first couple hundred years. They were greatly persecuted in a small realm. The churches of the East were much more dynamic. The church down in West Africa is an ap in, in, in North Africa, excuse me, were were apostolic. The churches down in Alexandria that, that Mark went to were apostolic. The Coptic churches, the Eastern churches, the church that, that, that he's a part of here in Antioch. Folks, there wasn't a one true church. There were true churches. More than one apostle started churches. Peter was not the only one. Paul started more than Peter. Peter seemed to be subject to Antioch and Rome. Paul had more than that. John seemed to have more than that. There is no competition amongst the apostles. That's why Paul said he perceived there were James in Jerusalem, Peter, who seemed to be back and forth between Antioch, as well as in the later parts of Rome. So I, I don't buy into this system. Here, Antioch, the bishop of Antioch, recognizes his authority is not equal to the apostles. So the idea of apostolic succession exists, but it does not exist in the way that Rome has decided to make it go. It's not the same. Leader appointment, apostolic succession may exist. I'm constantly torn on this subject myself. It may exist and it appears to exist. It can be traceable. But does that mean that apostolic succession authority is the same way the Roman Catholic Church has presented it through the papacy? I, I don't think so. Here's your proof. They want to use Ignatius. We'll read all of them. He clearly states, I don't issue commandments the way Peter and Paul do because they were apostles and I'm not. It's just my 10 cents. He also states in chapter three, this is, this is one of the most sobering. I remember the first time I was reading this during my dissertation work. I, I, I teared up on this one when, when I first read it, because when he gets to Rome, he realizes he's standing before a judge. He does not want to be released from his imprisonment. He wants to die. He says, my only request on my behalf is both inward and outward strength that I may not only speak, but truly will. 
and that I may not merely be called a Christian, but actually be found to be one. Here's what Ignatius said. He's stating, listen, don't pray for my release. (laughs) Don't, Don't even try. I do want you to pray that God would give me strength both inward and outward. That when I speak and I am on trial, they would not just say, well, he's a Christian. We're going to put him to death. But that actually when they investigate my life, my life has enough evidence to not just be a Christian in name, but in action. That my actions are guilty before this Roman judge. The judge would find me guilty, not by association, but by actions. I want to die because the evidence is against me. The evidence has been brought to the court and the court has found you guilty of being a Christian, not just being called a Christian. That that is powerful. May that be true of all of us That we would be found Christians, not called Christians. So we see in the epistle he wrote to the Romans, powerful statements like this, but also that he's not an apostle, doesn't have the authority of the apostle, which indicates his writings are not inspired uh, because he was not authorized in the same way the apostles were. He recognized a higher authority in them by commission of Jesus that he himself did not have. Therefore, these letters are not uh, scripture. Uh, He is not speaking and writing these letters under inspiration. He may be influenced by the Spirit, without a doubt, uh, but he is not writing theanustas, God-breathed words. Then he writes to the Philadelphians. He says, keep yourselves from those evil plants, which Jesus Christ does not tend, because they are not planting of the Father. Now, again, he's concerned about docetism. He's concerned about these teachings. He's like, hey, there's plants out there. Not all plants are the same. There are evil plants that are planted by men and there's heavenly plants planted by God. Do not give aid and attention to those who the Father has not planted. Do not fall for the traps. They're poison. It is in this epistle that he quotes John 3, 8. The story of Jesus and Nicodemus, giving us our er, one of our earliest witnesses that John's gospel is being quoted as authoritative scripture. And no doubt he was uh, connected to John. No doubt he would use John's gospel. He also quotes, and, and my dissertation work de- demonstrates this on charts, uh, John 3, 8. So he quotes gospel John, he quotes 1 Corinthians. He loved 1 Corinthians, by the way. In many of these letters, 1 Corinthians is one of his favorite letters he seems to quote. He loves Matthew as well. Matthew seems to be the most common well-read, well-quoted gospel of any of the four in the earliest stages of the church. That's demonstrated by the Didache and and guys like Ignatius. Uh, He also quoted Philippians uh, and Acts and Galatians. Uh, This idea that Acts was some later second century invention is nonsense. Ignatius already quoting it as scripture uh, very, very early on in the second century and as early as the uh, late first century. Uh, he also wrote a letter to the Smyrnans. Now, they are where Polycarp is the bishop. He wrote a letter to both the church and to Polycarp himself. He wrote first to the church. And in it, he 
he once again makes claim of docetism. Uh, he clearly uses a term connected to the word docetism in the letter there. Um, and, and in that letter, he warns them of what is going to happen in their teaching. They dismiss the physical nature of God in the flesh. The idea that Jesus was a physical man. And he, he runs after that with, with great contestment and anger, really, in some places. But he does it, and he, and he quotes multiple passages in doing it. Again, he, he quotes Matthew, and he quotes Luke. Again, dismissing the idea that this is a second century gospel. Um, quotes Acts and Luke, both in that letter. Romans, 2 Corinthians, and even the Old, prophet, the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. And again, the primary purpose of the letter is to counter those who make claims of docetism. And then he writes a personal letter, the seventh letter, to Polycarp, his friend. Polycarp uh, quotes in this, he quotes again Matthew, and, and uh, he quotes Ephesians and 1 Thessalonians. Ignatius then requests that Polycarp would actually send the letters to the various churches in Asia Minor that he intends. So he physically was able to hand a couple of them off. It seems to me that uh, he was able to handle two of them, hand off two of them to their actual bishops, the Magnesians and the Tralians, which he mentions Polybius and Damas. It's possible they took the letters, but these others like the, the Smyrna, obviously, and the Philadelphian, these other letters that he is not able to send off, uh, he wants uh, Polycarp to do it for him. The other would probably be the Ephesian church. He probably hand-delivered the Roman church to it by himself, but maybe not. Maybe he was concerned he wouldn't make it that far and have the opportunity. So maybe even Polycarp was in charge of delivering that, sending deliverers to send that letter over to Rome. We don't know. But he does request that these various churches in Asia Minor specifically have letters sent from him that Polycarp would deliver him. He states, inasmuch as I have not been able to write to all the churches because I must suddenly sail from Troas to Neapolis. As the will of the emperor enjoins, I beg that you, as being an acquainted with the purposes of God, will write to the other churches, the neighboring churches, that they also may act in like manner, such as are able to do so, sending messengers and other transmitting letters through those persons who are sent by you, that you may be glorified by a work which shall be remembered forever, as indeed you are worthy to be. Now, he's clearly close to Polycarp and trusts Polycarp with his letters. But what's amazing is we see a system of the chain of custody you hear me talk about all the time on this program. There is a chain of custody. Letters were not just, oh, anybody and everybody just took anything that got. Notice the manner in which these letters are sent. They were sent by messengers, trusted messengers, where the church knew the messenger, the writer knew the messenger. So just random letters aren't showing up. Connectivity, chain of custody. We saw earlier that he mentioned the Magnesians and the Tralians, the two bishops and their elders, trusted connections. The bishops seem to be in charge of organizing and orchestrating the letters of distribution from apostles and other bishops. Did you hear me? This idea that the church was just taking in everything and anything and oh, we like that one, we don't like that one. It had traceable connection to authentic and authorized sources. If a letter was sent to the apostles from the apostles, the respected messenger 
the respected leader of the church and the writer all had a system of connection of chain of custody. And therefore they knew by certain features and certain messengers, Paul, a certain signature, his specific designated messengers took these letters to the churches and they knew it came from the apostles themselves. And even when bishops were trying to communicate, like in a situation like this, it was authorized through specific messengers, bishops of connectivity, and distributed. Notice this, sending messengers and others transmitting the letters through those persons who are sent by you. These are designated, authorized scribes. They didn't just volunteer random people who said, uh, we're going to take the volunteers. Can I get a hand? Does anybody want to take these letters? Does anybody want to copy them for us? Uh, okay, uh, Joe in the back, you're in. Uh, Sally over here. That's not the way they did it. It was a much more organized machine. A well-oiled machine here. But we learn a lot about transmission and travel. The text of these epistles is known as, the thing is there are three recensions of these texts. So there, there's really no dispute that these are pretty much the seven original letters. There is dispute about which one of these letters is right because there's three recensions. There's a uh, short recension, which is found in the Syriac manuscripts. Uh, there's a middle recension, which is predominantly and only found in, in the Greek. Then there's a long recension, which is found both between Greek and Latin. The long recension has pretty much been dismissed, uh, that there's a lot of interpolation, things like that. Uh, the early recension, there was a time where people were actually, the, the shorter recensions were being disputed on the basis of the fact that they were actually mostly just taking comments or phrasing or, or excerpts of it and, and, and putting it in, into writing. So they have kind of been dismissed in the Syriac uh, language. It is the Greek middle recension that has pretty much been narrowed down to being the authentic. And we find that uh, to be the case uh, in, in many of the works that have been constructed and, and seeing where the recensions take place and, and the interpolations or just somebody doing an excerpt work on it. Pretty much the middle recension is the one I would land at or the authentic wording to the original seven. But there are other writings called the pseudo Ignatius writings uh, there are other epistles as well. The epistle to the Tarsians, uh, to the Antiochians, uh, to, to a man named Hero, who was a deacon of Antioch, uh, to the Philippians, which I've actually done work on the Philippians because it was in Codex H. Uh, it was also um, considered um, similar to some of his other writings, but at the end, it's been rejected as being authentic to Ignatius. Uh, he also wrote an epistle to Maria, the proselyte, uh, there's another letter uh, to to the Virgin Mary, <laughs> uh, to St. John. There's two, actually, a first and a second to St. John, uh, which, again, I, I Mary would have probably been dead by this point. Eh, John, he would have had to write a letter to John much earlier than he wrote these other seven that are authentic. And because uh, John would have been dead uh, around 101. So when he's writing these are probably closer to 110, 107, he'd have been dead. So it's possible he could have wrote a letter to John, but no one really takes these two letters serious. He 
also wrote to Mary of Neapolis. Uh, so the Epistle of Maria, the prostitute, and Mary of Neapolis. So, and then Mary, the virgin mother of Jesus. <laughs> so uh, I, I doubt that he he wrote any of these letters. And most see these as pseudo Ignatius. They're not authentic. But what we do, we, we learned a lot today from Ignatius. We covered a lot of ground. Ignatius was a God-fearer. He calls himself the God-bearer. He went off. He was eaten by animals. He was killed. He was martyred. Um, he did experience the thing that he wanted the most, death. But he believed in the resurrection. It's interesting. He talked about that death is closer to his resurrection, to not only experience the death of Jesus, but the resurrection of Jesus. He he wanted and longed for the association of dying for Jesus because Jesus died for him and that he would be raised the way Jesus was raised. So he believed in a resurrection, a bodily resurrection of Jesus and believers. And he did. He met his fate. He was killed. He is an early martyr. And these letters have been preserved. So Polycarp obviously did what he asked, but the text ended up having excerpts that were shorter. And later on, they were also expounded upon. Additions, adding, uh, interpolations were added into it as well. And that happened even to the New Testament manuscripts. We see that the expansion of the text happened over the years. But again, we don't have early copies of these the same way that we do some of the New Testament writings. So this is Ignatius. Uh, th this, this is his work. Uh, this is his, his livelihood, his bishopric there in Antioch. We've learned a lot about him from the church, about the ecclesiology. We learned a lot about the text and the tradition of passing the text on. We learned about his relationships. We learned about his theology. Uh, we learned about his martyrdom. We learned about his life. There's a lot here. And, uh, and I hope you learned something because these are... These are important figures in our history. These are important men. He, he believed in theology like the deity and the Trinity. He believed in the physical body of Jesus. He expelled the idea of docetism. He understood the worship of church, the ecclesiology and practice. He understood the Eucharist. We didn't go through some of those things. He believed in the Eucharist. He believed uh, in baptism. He believed in the Holy Spirit indwelling. He believed in the resurrection of the dead. He believed the church met on Sunday. He believed in the authority of the apostles. He believed in their texts and quoted them as scripture. This is one of the things that we gain by, by studying Ignatius and in other early writers and other early fathers, especially those connected to the apostles themselves. It's an amazing thing. And it's what we need in our church. We need to educate ourselves on men like this and read these letters and learn from them and see what we can apply to our churches and our lives today. Well, thank you for tuning in. I appreciate everybody coming in. It's a Saturday, and maybe you're watching this on a different day. But we hope that you will take to heart these things and once again tune in for new episodes as they come. Thank you for tuning in. Grace and peace to you.